know. It's, it's hard. This is what makes the first of them up so Fuck you, Rambo! to a very special episode of Work Stoppage. We are all here, your three hosts, John, Lena, and Dan, joined by a very special guest, Charlie. We are entirely listener-supported, uh, so if you throw us a few bucks on Patreon, we really appreciate it. If you don't, that's fine. If you're not in the Discord, what are you doing? Uh, get in there so you can see all the memes from the meme review. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you can, uh, wherever you think it matters. And without too much ado, since we're handling a pretty cool subject today, and we're going to get right into it for you, uh, we are talking to Charlie from the Student Workers of Columbia. Charlie, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Charlie. Um, he, him, his pronouns. I'm a second year PhD student in the history department at Columbia, um, organizer, strike captain, and records committee at uh, SWC UAW 2110 Student Workers of Columbia. Happy to be here. Oh, official awesome. as hell. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Charlie. We really appreciate it. Uh, listeners will know that we've briefly covered the, the Columbia strike before, but uh, as our, our listeners you know, have heard us say before, it's one thing to just you know relay stuff out of the labor press, but we always really prefer when we can to actually talk directly with folks that are involved, that are out on the picket lines, that really know what's going on and, and can really give that the worker's perspective. Um, so in that vein, like the, the workers right now have been on strike for several weeks. I, I know there's been a lot going on the past week. I'm sure folks have seen us retweeting a lot of stuff and just, you know, it's been, a whole lot's been going on. And so with all that information going out there, uh, you know, we've talked about how your folks are fighting for a living wage, fighting for health care. But could you get into basically the, the basics of, of, of what the work, student workers at Columbia are fighting for with the strike that you're on right now? Like what prompted the organizing and the strike? Sure. So, um, I mean, the short version of it is that we're fighting for our first contract with the university, our first union contract. Um, unionization efforts at Columbia are a long standing, you know, there's a long history to that that goes back, you know, really to the be almost to the beginning of, um, student worker unionization efforts in the United States, particularly at private universities. Um, this particular, you know, we got recognition from the university a few years ago, really from the NLRB, um, which prompted the university to start bargaining in 2018. And it's just kind of been a progressive fight for a contract ever since. Um, there was a strike in 2018 um, and then a strike at the beginning of this year. Um, and, you know, now we're on strike again and just kind of chipping away at Columbia trying to get a you know, good and fair contract. Our major demands 
um, are, you know, obviously compensation. New York City is a very expensive city to live in. You know, the there's a wide range of compensation in our unit, but I think the least uh, the people who make the least among us make around twenty nine thousand a year. People who make the most make just upwards of forty. None of which is, you know, even close to a living wage in this city. Um, we're fighting for so we're compensation is a big ask. Um, we're fighting for real recourse and neutral arbitration for um, various forms of harassment, be it sexual, racial, etc. Um, we're fighting for for full recognition of our unit as per the definition put out by the NLRB in their decision. Columbia is trying to restrict it. Well. Initially, they were only they tried to restrict it to only PhD students. We have slowly but surely chipped away at them to the point that now they have, I think, like a minimum of 400 hours worked definition. We're trying to, you know, obviously get the entire um, NLRB decision, which includes undergraduate and master's workers. Um, we're fighting for dental and vision. Um, we all have teeth, academics. We use our eyes a lot, um, <laughs> you know, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. It doesn't cost the university that much money. And I always I'm oh, we're fighting for, you know, some real form of union security as opposed to an open shop. Um, and I always forget something because, you know, we're asking, you know, it seems on the surface like we're asking for a lot. Uh, that sounds incredibly. Yeah. Reasonable. Oh, and better child care. Sorry? No, I said it sounds incredibly reasonable, but you were going to continue. Go ahead. Child care um, is a big thing. Better health care in general. Um, we used to have a better health care plan from Columbia. Columbia did away with that unilaterally. Um, those are the big things. Um, and then there are various smaller articles as well. Um, Pops off campus is one thing that we've been fighting for, which the university just hasn't addressed at all. Yeah, no, I mean, that's... That's all like it seems like, you know, some pretty bare minimum stuff like, you know, the the idea that folks should be able to take care of their bodies, be able to afford to, you know, house their family, <laughs> that sort of thing, especially as you were saying, like having a pay rate for workers of twenty nine thousand a year. That's barely a living. That's not really a living wage anywhere in the U.S., much less one of the most expensive cities in the world. And it's particularly pernicious because so I'm in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences where with a summer stipend, we make just shy of 35K. Um, the people who make the least money in our unit are people in the School of Social Work and, if I'm correct, people in the School of Public Health, which are typically gendered female forms of study and labor, um, which is no great coincidence on Columbia's part. So, you know, not only is the, it... Do the people who make the least among us, we all make a, you know, despicable, despicably small amount of money to live in mm -hmm. the city. But the people who make the least among us, you know, it's not just that the university's cheap. It's a deeply, deeply gendered form of pay inequity. Right. And then there's also the, uh, the inequity of like the relationship of all of your rates of pay to the amount of money that courses through the university's veins on an annual basis, right? They have like an unusually large endowment, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, just shy of $15 billion. <laughs> With a B. Billion? With a B, yes. So, Ouch. And the best thing is, um, you know, Columbia, well, Columbia is no stranger to lying through its teeth, but 
in the past round of contract negotiations, the kind of constant refrain of the university. And this was something they kind of pushed, you know, have pushed throughout the pandemic. And even still, Columbia's kind of pushed this narrative of austerity where due to the pandemic, there's a lot less money floating around. Therefore, we have to get funding to programs. You know, nobody's going to get a pay raise, et cetera, et cetera. And when they, you know, would tell us about our proposals, they would be like, you don't understand. Everybody has to tighten their belts right now. It's not just you guys. We can't afford this. And then lo and behold, at the beginning of the semester, Columbia's yearly financial report came out. And we learned that between June of 2020 and June in 2020 of 2021, the university's assets alone appreciated by $3.1 billion. Wow. And they ran an operating surplus. And so... <laughs> Then the university's talking point at the bargaining table changed from we can't afford it to and you can't make this up. We don't think it's appropriate to give you what you're asking. Wow. That's I mean, that's that's almost like shockingly brazen to basically just come out and say you're not worth any more than we're paying you. Essentially. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, I was talking to some of our friends and comrades at Harvard. And they were like, they didn't even say that to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's but Columbia, you know, Columbia doesn't really have to care about PR. Um, they just kind of do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's wild. Cause, cause that was one of the things that I've been wondering was because I, I do think that y'all have been doing a great job with your, your outreach, uh, at least, you know, through the social media that I've been able to follow with the, of pointing out that disparity between the the sub poverty essentially wages that that you're all being paid, and then this insanely huge endowment that the university has, and as you pointed out, like not only that they have all this money, but that it's increasing at a record rate. So even the idea of like, oh well, we have to keep that there for future students or whatever their justification would be, like doesn't even make sense. So. That's wild. <laughs> Indeed. And it's not only not only is this an absurd amount of money on the surface, it is the you know most that the endowment has appreciated in the past, in at least 10 years. You know, so what was right. supposed to be this time of record loss and austerity and tightening belts was in fact a you know unusually profitable period for the university. Not to mention a period of mass death and suffering. Right. Where, you know, I yeah. mean I wasn't at Columbia for the worst of it, but from what uh, people have told me, you know, people could not afford to pay their rent. Um, and Columbia, of course, offered very little, little to no relief. Um, so it's this sort of, it's, uh, they just brazenly, brazenly lie through their teeth. Um, in way, and sometimes, you know, it's in some ways it's nice to not have to deal with the smoke screen. Sure. You know, <laughs> sure. I go back and forth about whether or not, which I think is worse. Um, you know, and they do just kind of, they, there are no secrets between us. Um, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, yeah. it's like, no, you said the quiet part out loud. Like, what else is there to do? Like, <laughs> right. Well, we've seen this in every industry, right? Like, we've seen it in, in like, oh, I don't know if there's an industry that exists that did take a loss during the pan- the pandemic. I'm, I'm pretty sure that what we've seen around every single, it doesn't, it's not even just, like, you know, the colleges. It's literally everywhere that's doing that exact same line. They're right. all well, saying that, you yeah. know, oh, we couldn't afford it. 
But yet then you look at their their profit statements and they're like, well, you know, I mean, we just needed to make sure that the uh, investors got their share first or whatever right. their, their, their bullshit is. Well, and it's like, exactly. uh, you know, it's a similar situation to like Amazon where, you know, Amazon has been trying to fight unions and not necessarily lower their own rate of pay, but like devalue warehouse work. Uh, and they do it even though they have record profits uh, in the justification of like staying competitive. But it's it's even more ludicrous for a university to do it because they don't really have to compete <laughs> the way that like even nominally like a, a capitalist enterprise would theoretically have to compete. It's, I guess I'm also being generous to not call these universities capitalist enterprises, but that's its own <laughs> whole can of worms. <laughs> well, and it's also fascinating because the way that these universities nominally compete, at least for graduate education is mm-hmm. to you know be better than their competitor like provide right. better packages than their competitors right and the university you know i mean the problem is these universities can bank a on prestige and b you know i am at columbia not because i think it's a good place to be but because the handful of faculty that i work with are the people who do the things that i'm interested in right um so <laughs> you went to school to learn oh i know crazy right <laughs> yeah insane wild uh, academia being about you know the production of scholarship as opposed to i don't know creating a front for a massive real estate firm yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's fascinating too simply because columbia is you know by any metric columbia is the i the, it, they duke it out with the catholic church for being the largest landowner in new york city really um depending on the metric it's either them or the church and it's just like what sell one building and yeah. give us all dental, you know, like absolutely. And we've seen that sort of thing in in a lot of cities. Like I know, like in New Haven, Yale basically owns the entire city. Here in mm-hmm. Providence, like oh, sure. Brown is by far the largest landowner, all of which is tax free. So yeah, like, I mean, even in the rinky-dink little town I live in, uh, the the college here is the large, the second largest landowner after the DeVos family. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, it's true, and I mean, even one of the things. Yeah, I went to Brown and lived in Providence for a while, and it's fascinating to see, you know, Prov- Brown kind of even pitches this weird, like, patronizing narrative of like, oh, no, we support the city, you know, we care, and Columbia just doesn't even try that, <laughs> right. you know, they're just like, no, nah, no, nah, this it's all about that money. <laughs> there, yeah, and- I, there's no smokescreen. And. One of the other things that I saw that they've been pushing to try and justify their stance, which was, again, seemed so incredibly tone deaf, was this idea that, oh, yeah, we may pay the workers basically nothing, but they have access to a food pantry, so uh, it's fine. And then indeed, I was seeing, the food pantry. seeing some of what, <laughs> what you folks were posting were that, like, I don't even, I believe like they didn't even set up the food pantry. No, the food pantry was set up by students in the school of general studies, which are mostly, you know, at other places it's called resumed undergraduate education or something like that. People who are outside of the age range of, uh, you know, 18 to 22, 23 college people, but who are doing undergrad degrees, um, who are understandably some of the more vulnerable people at the university. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they set up that food pantry initially. I don't remember when. Um, And now the university's like, no, no, we have canned goods for you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's tons of stuff like that. I mean, they have the same pitch with, you know, housing, which is theoretically subsidized. Um, You know, Columbia owns 
most of the neighborhood surrounding the university and offers, I lived in Columbia, quote unquote, subsidized housing for five or six months when I first moved to the city. And it is not, you know, especially when I moved to the city and housing rent was lower anyway because of COVID. But, you know, I moved off campus and granted, I live far away from the university now. I live in Queens. But even if I were to live closer to the university, it's not subsidized by any, you know, like you can easily find something cheaper. The real issue is that a lot of the people in graduate programs at Columbia are international students and therefore have no American credit. Right. Um, and they can't, you know, if New York is a hellscape for finding housing. I mean, you, I've, I think I, when I was looking for apartments, most landlords were like, you need to have 40 times the monthly rent in annual income. And I was like, buddy, there's not four mo- 40, 40 months in the year. Right. 40. Completely true. Um, and, you know, even my roommate is Canadian and my name is on the lease, you know, because I have American credit and she doesn't. Uh, and so Columbia kind of has people stuck. You know, they have to rent from Columbia and therefore enforcing this bizarre, you know, very early to mid 20th century company town model where Columbia is not only mm-hmm. your boss, but also your landlord. And, and they everything. all own the food pantry. Yeah. You know? And 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 they're subsidizing your housing by saying, like, was twenty five hundred dollars a month uh, now on sale for two thousand. Meanwhile, it, like it had been two thousand the entire time. Like just Black Friday sticker swapping crap. I mean, like, do they even give you like a couple of hundred bucks off your rent if you go through the program or like how how pathetic is the subsidization? It, I mean, the problem is it's it's also very difficult to pin down simply because, you know, sure. a median for a two bedroom. What does that mean? What is a two bedroom? A two bedroom can look like a lot right. of things. I live in a two bedroom. It's much smaller than a lot of other two bedrooms. Um, but, you know, I pay nine hundred dollars a month. For my two bedroom in Queens, most people in Columbia pay twelve or thirteen hundred dollars for their share of a two bedroom. Their share of a two bedroom. Wow. Yeah. So the total is, you know, and for me, you know, my total rent with my roommate is eighteen hundred. We each pay nine hundred. In most Columbia two bedrooms, it's you know twenty four or twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah. So wow. Good and yeah, like you're saying, and they're now telling they're expecting people to pay that while getting paid. Twenty nine, thirty thousand dollars a year. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's and it's amazing just how much better. I mean, of course, it's sort of a double edged sword because now I can't rent strike like the rest of my colleagues. <laughs> you know, because my landlord is not sympathetic to the cause. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, well, whereas I mean, Columbia's. Sorry. I'm just surprised they haven't been like, oh, two bedroom. Isn't there a third bedroom called a living room? Why don't you get another roommate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In some cases, I don't think that, you know, I mean, and this is an infamous New York thing where it's like, oh, this was a, a this is a three bedroom with yeah. no living because the living room used to be yeah. or the yeah. bedroom. This bedroom used to be a living room. We put a wow. Murphy bed in the bathroom. Now it's a four bedroom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. I mean, I have a friend who, a lot of friends of mine who live in Columbia housing, who started during COVID moved into quote unquote subsidized studios because they were like, I don't want to live with strangers. Right. In September of 2020. And, you know, one of my friends, this isn't really related to anything, but lives in one of those classic, you know, stereotypically New York apartments where the toilets in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Like if you go to the bathroom, like, and you pull the curtain, that fridge isn't there. Um, wow. <laughs> um. So speaking of 
kind of COVID, like I know that before like we get into the strike that, that's ongoing right now, I just want to, because we had mentioned to, to our listeners in previous coverage of the issue that obviously, as you said, the contract, the fight for a contract has been going on for a long time. And even just, just in this year, you all were on strike earlier in the spring. And so a, can you just tell us what that strike was like? But B, one of the things that I'm wondering is, was there difficulty earlier in the year in drumming up support, in being able to be disruptive when folks were more like oriented around, you know, online remote learning. And so less folks are on campus. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, the, um, spring strike was authorized by an old, by an old strike authorization vote. Um, which I want to say was from before the pandemic started in 2019 or maybe the beginning of 2020. Um, this is where, this is before my time. So my sense of the timeline is a little bit shakier, but essentially, you know, in order to set up a bargaining framework um, and this involves lots of, you know, kind of shady stuff with a sidebar involving the UAW and the university, which we don't need to go into in too much detail. Um, but that signed away our right to strike for two years, starting in 2018. Um, mm. And once that elapsed, um, there was a strike authorization vote, and then the pandemic hit. So people were kind of preparing to strike. Everybody you know, has to leave or go into quarantine or what have you. Um, People are kind of waiting until in the spring of 2021, um, the strike occurs. And, you know, it was a very odd strike. I wasn't particularly plugged in until, you know, I heard from a couple of friends of mine who were in the cohort ahead of me what was going on. And I was like, all right, you know, these are my politics. I'll show up. Um, and, you know, got involved but it was it was very empty you know i mean there weren't a lot of people on campus um very few undergrads and undergraduate solidarity you know from pe people who aren't in our bargaining unit that has been very important a just historically undergraduate organizing at columbia has been historically very important force and you know this time around it's been invaluable um, but yeah, so, you know, and there were a lot of people who just weren't around. And so there was a lot of virtual picketing, which, you know, and there continues to be, we have a virtual, a digital picket, which, you know, they do important things. They do a lot of fundraising and contacting, you know, email blasting and things like that. But it is no substitute for a good old fashioned picket line. And there just weren't that many people. Um, this was made even worse by the fact that so our bargaining committee last time around was split into two factions, seven people, um, who there are seven people who were kind of less, you know, it was well, three people from the rank and file caucus and seven people who weren't, um, those seven people were kind of always very stressed about strike power um and the peak re reaching peak strike power um and we're you know interested in kind of cutting the other three people out of conversations as much as possible mm. um very shady and so eventually um the strike kind of goes on for two to three weeks 
you know, there's not the energy is there, but not great. Uh, you know, kudos to everybody who picket captained during that stretch of time. But two to three weeks into the strike, the bargaining committee um, votes to pause the strike in exchange for federal mediation. Um, wow. Okay. There's a poll circulated throughout the unit where I don't remember exactly how many people signed, but it was extremely well filled out that essentially said, you can't do this. You know, we, and the, you know, talking point was we're at our peak strike power. We're not going to get any better than this. You know, we'll go into mediation. Mediation, of course, without strike power is meaningless. Um, So obviously this results in, you know, there were a lot of people who kind of stayed on strike um, without the support of the bargaining committee. The three people who were dissenting stayed on strike. But yeah, so ultimately mediation is kind of a dead end. It produces a kind of shitty tentative agreement. This is put out to the unit for ratification. Three dissenting members organized with a lot of people, myself included to a much lesser extent, because at this point I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in the union. I'm just like, mm-hmm. what? The bargaining committee disagrees with it. What's going on here? <laughs> um, but so in May, the um, unit organizes to vote down the tentative agreement. Uh, 55 to 45 about, which seems like it's kind of narrow, but this is the first time a contract has ever been voted down in the history of student worker unions. Um, Every other contract in a student worker union has been voted up 85, 90 plus percent approval. So meanwhile, we're doing this without the support of the majority of the bargaining committee, without real access to, you know, email lists and things like that. This is a purely rank and file driven no vote campaign that against all odds puts down this contract. The seven, the entire bargaining committee resigns summer of 2020 slash late spring. Um, call it May, late May. Um, there is an election where a 10 person slate rank and file caucus called the worker empowerment slate two with two of the dissenting members, one of the other, the other, the third dissenting member of the BC was just like, I, this is soul crushing. and I don't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And she's still, you know, an extremely involved organizer in our unit, but I cannot blame her even at the slightest for no longer wanting to look at Columbia's lawyers anymore. Sure. But yeah, so um, there's an election, the worker empowerment slate wins. Um, becomes the new bargaining committee. We have a 10-person united slate on the bargaining committee. Um, Over the summer, we kind of reorganized the unit. This is also the first time that the worker empowerments, you know, rank and file caucus has power in the union. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of reshuffling that goes on, a little bit of conflict with, um, you know, there was some amount of factionalism and internal disagreement with the union, within the union. But once we kind of reach the fall, that all kind of takes a backseat. And we, you know, over the summer, we want to continue bargaining with Columbia. Columbia says, no, we are on vacation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which is great for us now because we can just be like, look, we wanted to bargain over the summer. Columbia did it. I mean, that's the thing. These people are just... 
I like the it's like oh I'm sorry we're not accepting vacation time right now Columbia University yeah <laughs> right and it's like all right like what like who do you think you are yeah um you know there's a lot so we resume bargaining in August Columbia wants to close bargaining we've historically had open bargaining we say no they say we're not going to bargain we say good fucking luck um, <laughs> Columbia caves we have open bargaining to this day. Um, yeah, and uh, sorry, I kind of rambled for a while about what the no, summer looked no, like. A bunch was... of us delivered a petition to the head of HR, VPs, what is he called? The VP for Human Resources. We kind of, you know, walk into his office, past the various gates, etc., and hand him this petition, um, saying, oh, yeah. you know, we want open bargaining, it works. You know, nice. we spook him, yeah, bada bing, bada boom. Right. He in turn spooks the president of the college. What you guys have a nickname for him? What is it again? <laughs> yes. So this individual that we paid a visit to is Dan Driscoll. Okay. Um, who is great guy? Uh, president is President Lee Bollinger, <laughs> or as he is known with varying degrees of affection, Presbo. Presbo. <laughs> oh, so I remember there. There's a little video that came out about uh, some chanting in one of the lectures, right? Am mm-hmm. I? Yeah. So to get you up to speed to that point, Columbia's not really moving at the bargaining table. Beginning of the fall semester, you know, we start talking about uh, we ha- we hold the strike authorization vote. It's extremely well. We have great turnout. Um, people vote overwhelmingly to authorize the strike or authorize the BC to have strike power. Um, there's a lot of internal debate about when the best time to go on strike is. Um, a lot of people thought that going on strike at the end of the semester and having a grading strike would have been the right thing to do. This, I don't think was a bad idea on the surface, but after the spring strike, Columbia kind of rearranged itself to make it easier to put off grades essentially and thereby taking the teeth away from a grading strike. Okay. Semester. People are also worried after the spring strike about the length that a strike could possibly last. So there's talk of having a definite strike for a week or two. There's talk of, you know, some people want to go on strike at the very beginning of the semester. We ultimately decide there's not quite enough organizing capacity to, you know, do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also note that Columbia over the summer unilaterally changed the so the disbursement of pay so our pay is divided into two segments depending on if you're on appointment or not um you get a third of your pay in the form of wages and then uh two-thirds of it in the form of a stipend and theoretically the stipend is not compensation columbia holds the stipend is not compensation for labor typically um and that it's tied to our status as students not as workers Columbia mm-hmm. changes the stipend disbursement schedule unilaterally, which we have then filed an unfair labor practice suit about, to say that while generally the stipend segment had been dispersed in full at the beginning of the semester, it would now be dispersed on a biweekly schedule along with the wage component. Theoretically, um, in order to standardize pay prep. All fine mm-hmm. and good, we see very clearly that this is the new provost trying to find a way to make it easier to withhold pay, all pay in the event of a strike. Previous strike, Columbia tried to claw back the stipend segment, uh, which obviously didn't work because nobody's <laughs> going to be like, oh, no, of course, please take <laughs> right, my right, money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So that's the other important thing that happens over the summer. Um, there's also no, we typically have gotten a 3% pay raise absent to contract. Columbia doesn't do this clearly in retaliation for us not ratifying the contract. It's our first ULP that we file. So we now have two and we're probably filing a third mm-hmm. um, for retaliatory practices. But anyway, yes. Yeah. So we hold the SAV. We ultimately determine that we're going to go on strike when we did at the beginning of November to give us enough time to kind of build, to organize the unit while at the same time giving us enough time to have a meaningfully long strike. A week before the strike, we have a massive, we organize a massive walkout where some number, a few hundred, I can't remember off the top of my head, but many people walk out from their classes and labs, et cetera, gather, we have a big rally, and then we decide to pay, this is on a Wednesday afternoon, where the president has his, I can, you can't make this up, free speech class. Um, <laughs> we get the crew to march on the building where the president has his class, which is in kind of a side plaza near my department's building. Um, and we're all just kind of chanting outside, and I and the other people who, you know, other organizers kind of looked around and were like, do we go inside? <laughs> <laughs> like we hadn't really expected this many people to show up because, you know, we're at the end of the day, we, we were used to COVID times organizing, which was just, mm-hmm. we didn't have that kind of energy. And we had tons of people, the ton of energy and a ton of undergrads really angry and ready to disrupt things. And so we're like, yeah, I guess we'll go inside. And we do. And um, some of our amazing undergraduate comrades kind of lead the charge into the classroom. Um, And only a handful of people go in, but they're, you know, chanting in the classroom and there's videos of it that circulate. The president, because he's a spineless individual, immediately, well, first he says, this is what makes the First Amendment so difficult. And then evacuates, (laughs) evacuates quickly and like (laughs) frantically um, himself and his security guard out of the building and cancel the rest of the class. Yeah. Cause like you said, Uh, this guy Lee Bollinger, AKA Presbo, he's like, his whole deal is that he's a constitutional law, like law professor who, who specializes in free speech issues. Right. He's yes. He is. He teaches and works on first amendment issues, free speech, et cetera. Okay. (laughs) Um, And we're just like, okay um so he <laughs> runs away like he it, it, it's as though like it's something out of a movie you know where like his security yeah. guards are, like filing him out to the secret passageway <laughs> and you know we're all just like all right where now and so um in the we, video that uh, i saw it almost looked like the students were evacuating like just like one one of the organizers was like hey let's get out of here and then the, some pe- people were like you know what yeah it just seemed like yeah no i mean some of the students just started walking out um but for the president this is you know well before his class is supposed to end just books it out of there (laughs) down some you know stairwell we didn't know existed out of the building um and we all are just like okay so i guess we'll see where he's going we all go out of the building down 116th street to his mansion and kind of protest outside of there for a bit and at this point, we kind of realized that we have, you know, the, the power of solidarity has escaped our control as organizers. And we're like, we should probably get Rain control of things. 
Right, Indeed, right, we yeah. like we haven't even started striking yet. Um, so we eventually, you know, end things. And but yeah, so the important thing about that day, a, is that you know, Columbia sees very clearly that we are not playing around. Two, um, a clip taken by a student in the class makes it onto the Rachel Maddow show. Um, ah. This kind of kicks off. This, it's like as part of a segment about strikes happening across the United States, we're kind of grouped together with the definite three-day Harvard strike, which was supposed to evolve mm-hmm. into an indefinite strike. It didn't. It's a different story entirely. But yeah, we make it onto national television for the first time ever. And that kind of cascades into this first wave of press we have. Um, right. Well, and the... There, there's also been a, a steady stream of press coverage covering other UAW groups that have been on strike recently, such as uh, Volvo Truck and John Deere workers. And exactly. uh, so there's kind of a dual question I guess I have for you now is like, how has the coverage been uh, relevant to like the greater UAW slate of worker actions? And also, uh, since you were talking so much about like deliberating how best to plan the strike, what was like the broader UAW involvement and what did their support mean to you when you were determining uh, when you were going to have this action? Sure. So to the first question, I mean, this is not something that would have been at all successful were it not for other strikes happening. Mm-hmm. You know, at this moment, I mean, I think it's one of the things that made there are a lot of differences between this strike in the spring. But one of them is that we are now part of this broader wave of labor organizing, both within and without the UAW. But, you know, we've got a lot of UAW got a lot of power from the, and I think a lot of confidence mm-hmm. from, you know, the Volvo and John Deere strikes that they did not have previously. And it really changed the tone of our interactions with the UAW even from the summer. Okay. So that, and you know, we had some conversations with organizers at John Deere um, towards the end of their strike. And yeah, I mean, were it not for the strike Tober into strikes giving, into strikes McCush, strike Smiths, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. There's no strike universe to which we, indeed, the <laughs> non denominational strike <laughs> elf holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. There's no universe in which we are as, you know, we owe so much to other unions um, and other strikers for the amount of success we've had thus far and what we've done. So, yeah, in terms of our planning with the UAW, you know, the, I mean, the rank and file caucus kind of emerged in response to this sidebar that I discussed a bit earlier between the UAW and Columbia that created this bargaining framework that took away our strike power until 2020. Um, so relationships between the rank and file caucus and the UAW were sometimes strained. This kind this changes a lot once the semester starts. You know, we've had great relationships with the UAW staff on our campaign this time. Yeah, it's been they've been much more helpful this this time around than they have been in the past. I mean, it's nice. been really it's been great to just kind of see, you know, and I think in large part this is also due to the you know, as all of this is happening, the one member, one vote right. uh, campaign is taking place in the UAW. We can't vote on this because we don't have a contract, but our local 2110 is kind of a stronghold of one member. One vote. Uh, okay. And, you know, I yeah. mean, I don't have any real evidence for this, but I get the feeling that that's kind of one of the other things that changes the tone of our interactions with UAW. 
Definitely. Yeah, I mean, you spoke on how the rank and file movement within your own, uh, your own, or your own union was one of the things that actually brought you into more more power and and to have a more cohesive fight uh, for for your rights. Without a doubt, yeah. Um, I mean, it just was a change in the tone of organizing as well, and you know, part of the broader shift that we're having from business unionism to solidarity unionism. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, absolutely. Love to see which is something one. that Colombia is very scared of because Colombia pisses <laughs> a lot of people off um, in this city, both union and non-union alike. Um, and I think you know we've had great relationships not just with other unions in New York City, but also with groups like the United Front Against Displacement in Harlem. Colombia is a notorious gentrifier in Harlem and Washington mm-hmm. Heights. Um, they've been great to us. You know, it's. The, just the entire tone of things is so different now. Nice. Yeah, because I know that that tracks with um, – we were reporting on the, the one-member, one-vote um, you know, election that just happened. And, and in the, the research for that, it, it definitely like popped out that um, – because I, I think when a lot of people hear UAW, they may not necessarily immediately associate it with – you know, graduate workers mm-hmm. and, and academics, but I, I believe it's about 20% of the UAW's yep. membership is academic workers. And those tended to be some of the, like, by far strongest votes for, you know, real union democracy in those elections. I believe the the Harvard union was something like 97% in favor, whereas I believe the the average for the, the total UAW is about 62% in favor. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, um, that definitely lines up with that. And frankly, but, it makes me optimistic for you know that it has and just the way that you know relation the sort uh, the strength of you know radical organizing among the I mean throughout the UAW, but also within the academic sector of the union has made me more optimistic than I have been in a long time about the future of academia. Sure. Um, oh, nice. Because you know, I mean. Academia, even left-leaning academia, is notorious for not walking the walk. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And I think we're, you know, if we're lucky, we'll see the next generation of academics look around and say, like, no, actually, you know, this is our fight, too. You know? Yeah. I mean, we saw that with, with all of these rank-and-file movements. I think that we also had, I thought that you were, you were you said academia, and I was like, I thought you were going to say, oh, I have more hope in the in the union movement and the worker movement. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly how we were feeling. But then even to see that you you mentioned like academia as a, an additional benefactor of that sort right. of rank and file <laughs> solidarity movement is uh, is exactly what what we talk about when we talk about people power, you know? Right. Indeed. Well, and of course, you know, the optimism about the worker movement and rank and file unionism in general goes without saying. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's you. you you look around and it's hard not to kind of feel that optimism, but generally academia as an industry as a, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, it has, you know, doesn't have a great track record mm-hmm, with yeah. this sort of thing. And it's, you know, I'm one thing that I try to tell other academics is that like, you know, look, not only is this a fight for our living conditions currently, but this is a fight for the soul of academia. You know I mean? Right. Without us, there's not going to, you know, there are already no jobs coming out of this, but, you know, with graduate worker unions and adjunct instructor unions, you know, this group of people that has been, you know, used as a means of destroying job security and academia, 
can finally look around and say, okay, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. You know, the university is not, you know, shouldn't just be the playground of the administrators. Yeah. I yeah, mean, right. I think someone said once that, you know, the purpose of studying history isn't just to understand it, but maybe to change it. Yeah. And it's something that I, 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 so I taught before striking a Roman history course. Um, I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a medieval historian um, in my own work. And one of the things that was so, you know, a lot of people don't know about the, there was a handful of actions taken in the early Roman Republic called the secessions of the plebs, wherein workers um, in ancient Rome walk out, essentially. This happens two or three times. Um, this happens a handful of times, and they essentially, you know, in protest of various things, including debt bondage and poor working and living conditions, just leave the city on mass. Mm-hmm. Um, many people consider this to be, you know, just a general strike essentially, and this greatly changes the access to political power that the plebs has. And you know, it's obviously not a. There are lots of other problems that come with the new plebeian assemblies, but you know, it's clearly workers exercising their power. Right. Um, and I got to teach this to my students, and you know, I got to tell them like, this a collective action works. B, here's all this other evidence for how people reacted negatively against them, you know, in the historic, the chronicle tradition, et cetera, the Roman historical tradition. Sure. Three, I'm doing this later. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, we all miss our students, I think. I mean, that's the thing is that we really, we, you know, we really do like our jobs. We like teaching. We like research. Um, but I think going on strike is one of the most powerful pedagogical choices that I've made ever you know i mean i've seen my students come out to the picket line one of my students brought us homemade cookies um last wednesday you know i think this is something that once my students forget the details of roman history they'll remember this Uh, right well maybe this will help them remember roman history as well another added bonus of labor actions yeah (laughs) (laughs) could be well it's also interesting because you're not just fighting for like your workplace but as we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the rampant like landlordism and like monolithic um you know community control that that institutions like columbia uh possess you're also kind of fighting for the spirit of your community and so like in that regard what kind of like community out like how has the community at large in the area both owned by the university and around it uh been receptive of your of your union actions it's funny to so we two weeks ago had a march down the middle of broadway from the medical campus mm-hmm. at 168th and fort washington to the main campus at 116th and excuse me, it's always, you know, I was talking to a lot of my friends about this, about how, you know, the vibe, you know, when you're walking through these traditionally black and Hispanic working class neighborhoods that have, you know, always kind of had a healthy skepticism for Colombia. Sure. You know, the amount of support that we got just walking down the street and people being like, yeah, you know, we know Colombia is bad. And then we get back <laughs> onto campus and there's a lot of students who are just like, what's going um, you know, the sort of support that we got from people in Washington Heights and Harlem was very different. Um, and that's not to say that our, you know, undergraduates and other people on campus haven't been supportive, but there's certainly a, a, a segment of the campus population. Just like, I don't know about that. Right. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of support from people 
you know, be it restaurants in Morningside Heights in Harlem to groups like the United Front Against Displacement who are fighting against the privatization of public housing in Harlem and Washington Heights to, you know, just people um, contributing to the hardship fund, showing up to the picket, et cetera. We've had, a, you know, a lot of people are kind of recognizing that, you know, Columbia is somebody, one of my colleagues described it as a, a hedge fund with neoclassical architecture and realizing <laughs> that I can't claim that line, um, but it is a good one. And we're yeah, all kind of looking absolutely. around and realizing, all right, we've got a common enemy here, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and it's one of the places that we we picketed more in the spring when, you know, on campus picketing was a little bit less powerful because just simply because there were fewer people to see the spectacle. But there's a new campus that Columbia built in Manhattanville um, in the West 130s, right, you know, where they displaced tons of black and Latinx residents to build this new campus Mm -hmm. right across the street from the Manhattanville houses, um, public housing complex. And, you know, it's this sort of symbol. It's. James Baldwin wrote about, you know, Columbia as the city on a hill overlooking, you know, Harlem. And this new mm-hmm. complex is literally, you know, the Cotton Club is right in the shadow of it. And, you know, it was just fascinating to be there and just see, you know, this very visual juxtaposition of Columbia as a, you know, developing, gentrifying entity in Harlem, uptown New York City. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we're all kind of looking around being like, all right, this is our fight. Yeah, and, and 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 speaking of like being able to unite around a, a common enemy, like if it, it really feels like over the last couple of weeks, the strikes really escalated largely, I mean partially from your own organizing, but also with the way that the university has responded. I know that they sent out uh an email to uh, all of y'all with so basically, essentially a semi-veiled threat to to fire any mm-hmm. workers who who stayed out on strike. Can you you talk about that? And then the you know the response that that's engendered from both you know within the union and but also you know external support. Sure. So yeah, we get this email from Grad Pay Assist, which is I mean, never an email you want to see in your inbox. Yeah. Shoot. Last Thursday, Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, time isn't real anymore. But yeah, the the week before last, say workers who are remaining on strike past December 10th, we cannot guarantee that they will receive assignments in the spring. In t- super vague, um, couched fully in the language of HR. Mm-hmm. Um, we are all terrified. Like, what's going on? So we sure. there's an organizing push to reach out to the faculty of our departments because this isn't typically the purview of the administration. It's the departments who assign mm. assignment um, for the next semester. In fact, a lot of people already received their assignments. Some people receive all of their assignments at the beginning of the academic year um, and are just like, I don't think that's your call to make. I know that I'm teaching, <laughs> you know, you know one, of, one of my friends, Latin 200 next semester. Sure. And it's already in the course catalog. And, you know, it seems very illegal. So we all reach out to various people in our departments, varying degrees of support. Um, the director of graduate studies in our department essentially reads the email charitably for us. A lot of people are just like, no, yeah, that's not what they can't do that. 
So not only do we get a lot of support from, you know, we get external support from a number of different avenues because of this. Number one, people who are not on strike within our union are pissed. Um, and a lot of people, you know, stop attesting that they're not on strike as a means of solidarity. Number oh. two, faculty are, I know, yeah, we were surprised too. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, our union, our unit is kind of a, we've become significantly more radical, but is, is ultimately a relatively moderate one. Sure. Um, and it's been interesting to see how this email in particular has radicalized a lot of people. And just, you know, Columbia's retaliation throughout the strike has made our unit significant. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of trying to do a collective punishment where they're like, we don't like some of you, so we're going to fuck all of you. And then all of you are just like, well, if you're going to fuck all of us, then fuck you. <laughs> you know? Right, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, you know... Number two, faculty, um, you know, if there's one thing faculty don't like, it's in the administration, you know, mucking around with departmental autonomy. Sure. Um, so a lot of them are furious. Um, and we've had varying degrees of faculty support throughout the strike. A lot of people, you know, even some theoretically radical faculty have not been particularly supportive. Um you know, a lot of just like, oh, well, you guys have fine asks, but we don't support your methods, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> this time, or a lot of people were like, we support you. And that's it. Um, right, right, right. Here's a retweet. Essentially, yeah. Um, this kind of escalates after the, you know, a lot of faculty are like, that's none of your business, university. So we organize a massive faculty rally the Monday, last Monday, where, you know, a lot of really great radical scholars like Jack Halberstam, um speak and go you know start talking to press you know uh, at least 100 probably more faculty show up for this massive rally we have one of the largest pickets we've had ever um and you know a lot of faculty start retweeting us start talking to press start donating the hardship fund you know so that's another group that columbia has managed to piss off number three other unions in new york city um, you know, I think a lot of other unions kind of are a little bit skeptical of graduate worker unions or student worker unions, especially at, you know, institutions like Columbia. I think we've, I think this kind of, you know, the threat to, of firing kind of eliminates that in a lot of cases. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've had relationships with other unions on campus, but also like Teamsters in New York City people from labor notes who are, are experienced New York labor organizers, people we've had long-standing relationships with other, you know, academic unions like adjunct unions and grad worker unions at NYU and CUNY who show up for us, you know, even more than they usually have, which is a lot. Uh, teachers. And I know I feel bad because I'm definitely missing people, but there is just so many people who kind of show up and show out who are like, you know, you go after one union in this town, you go after every union in New York city, because ultimately New York is a union town which is, you know, changes the tide. And that's when we start organizing the action that we took last Wednesday, where we have this, you know, massive campus-wide picket at every entrance. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, leads to a whole nother round of press coverage um, that in turn, you know, I, I think we've made more money in the past week, or let's just say since the HR email went out, the grad pay assist email went out, than at any other point either like a in union history and b in in our union's history and during the course of this strike um like we now have comparable amounts of money that we did to when we started the strike um wow. simply because columbia just can't shut 
up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I know in response to your your big picket on Wednesday, where y'all y- essentially managed to shut down the campus, I saw that the Columbia tried to accuse you of basically committing acts of violence against people trying to cross the picket line. Yes. So this isn't the first time the Columbia has tried to go after us for this sort of thing. They called in the four, four of the undergrads of our undergraduate comrades who went into the president's classroom were later um, brought in for student conduct charges, which we then organized around them. And, you know, these were like, you know, all first-year students, um, half of them were students of color. You know, like bad look for Columbia. Regardless, Clear we organize around topic. this. Yeah, indeed, we these charges are dismissed. But I did want to, you know, these people put a lot on the line for us very early in the game. We owe a lot to them. Uh, so shout out to the four undergrads. But yeah, so they there are various emails from our provost Mary Boyce, who is just likes to lie um, <laughs> about how there's violence on the picket line. And look, there were a few cases where I, a few of a few of the people on our side got perhaps a little too rowdy, but nothing that would qualify as violence under any, you know, traditional definition of the term. All of the violence that occurred were people attacking picketers, be it, you know, people grabbing us, tearing apart signs. I was pushed and shoved all, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of verbal and physical violence that was racially and, um, you know, gender coded, mm-hmm. um, people driving bikes through the picket line, you know, the serious violence that occurred was against us. Um, we have talked to people. So, uh, public safety, I, I'm always puzzled by Columbia public safety because I can never quite gauge the degree to which they're cops. Um, right. Because like I, I went cops. to Brown, public safety at Brown were unambiguously cops. Mm-hmm. At Columbia, it seems like there's multiple tiers of public safety, the top of which are cops, the bottom of which are just like regular security guards. Putting that aside for the moment, they're unionized with the TWU. We were talking to them and they were like, we received no complaint. Um, yeah, <laughs> there you go. And we were like, all right. So, you know, there's no like... Clearly, we don't want to invalidate anybody's concerns. And if there was, you know, some amount of violence that occurred, we want to take full responsibility for it. But we don't have any evidence. There's, no, there's been no re- complaints yeah, right. aside from the university and a few rumors. that have, But oh, nothing course. substantiated. Have they done anything about the violence that was done to the picketers? No, of course not. <laughs> oh, what a shock. <laughs> no, and we did. And we were talking to some of the unionized people of public safety, and they were like, Yeah, we've got complaints about that. We're not doing anything about that, though. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, Columbia doesn't care about that, you know. Of course. Why should they? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we've made ourselves enemies. So I know that they're also trying to basically muddy the waters about like why y'all are out on still out on strike by basically essentially declaring, Hey, we, we gave them an offer that fulfills what they're asking for. Can you like kind of dispel a little of that? Cause I know that, that, um, the, the student workers of Columbia put out a, a, a very well put together graphic that explained the difference, but if you just at high level, like, yeah, that graphic like, could do a better job than I ever could, but just like, 
a handful of the ways that that offer is insufficient. Um, I mean, this is clearly an attempt by the administration to divide, A, to divide the unit. Um, so people who you know might want to settle to be like, why are you still doing this? Um, number two, to divide us from our newly won faculty and undergrad, well, not newly won undergraduate support, newly won faculty support mm-hmm. and increased undergraduate support um, by saying, you know, oh, these people are just whiners. You know, they just want too much. We've given them something. But yeah, I mean, the offer on the table, even the more moderate elements of the union have said it's insufficient and they're not going to take it, Um, which is really just a great litmus test for when you know an offer is bullshit. Yeah. The people who didn't who are people who weren't necessarily thrilled about going on strike in the first place are like, we're not going on strike. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so arbitration is one of the big things Um, they granted us. A neutral arbitration for cases of racial ba- race-based harassment as per the Harvard contract, which is very lackluster for a lot. Right. Um, the other problem, so no Title IX issues can be brought to an arbitrator. The arbitrator essentially has no power. Um, the scope, so the scope is very limited in which case, you know, in the case that somebody can actually go to a neutral arbitrator. The arbitrator has, in almost every case, no power to do anything except send the case back to the university or, you know, claim that certain damages should be paid out. Um, So it's essentially a toothless form of arbitration, Mm -hmm. which, of course, makes sense because Columbia is an institution that has, you know, in my department, in the English department and across the university, a really bad history of tenured faculty sexually assaulting students and student mm. workers um columbia has a very vested interest in protecting those people so that's part of it number two we adamantly believe that you know we should receive full recognition of our unit as per the nlrb's definition columbia re- has you know created this bogus and arbitrary minimum 400 hours requirement for hourly workers to be in the unit so you know you would have to essentially if you worked and part of the issue is, you know, Columbia, for a lot of these quote unquote hourly workers, they are for all intents and purposes on appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the university tells them how many hours to log, regardless of how many hours they work. So these are people who work, you know, more than, for example, 15 hours a week, um, but whom the university tells them log 15 hours a week. They can easily oh, tell wage them. Theft. Ah, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> so. Even if you were somebody who works 15 hours a week, you wouldn't be a member of the unit until, you know, three semesters um, of working, which is bogus. Um, This is also an entirely new means of, you know, shrinking union power. They've never even tried this. Like they've tried hourly minimums, but hours worked minimums is brand new and particularly bogus. They want open shop, which is never going to happen. Screw that. I mean, part of the problem is the Columbia Graduate Union accepted open shop. Right. We've been dealing with that fallout for a while. You know, we've had a lot of support from our friends at Harvard, but it is a little hard not to be bitter about that. Uh, And uh, just for the listeners, open shop is basically like right to work in your union, isn't it? Yeah. Mm hmm. So yeah, you, so yeah no, people, people being able to benefit from the hard work of the organizing without actually 
paying into the union. Right, exactly. which is a way to disincentivize people from either joining or supporting the union in general. Exactly. Um, they want a five-year contract with a no-strike clause. So essentially to wait for all of us who are radicalized and, you know, ready to fight until all of us are gone. Um, right. And then, you know, treat the next wave of union organizers like crap. Yeah. We talked trying about to capitalize this. on that nat- natural turnover rate. In, right. Indeed. In um, grad school. We mentioned exactly. uh, that with uh, some other graduate unions that were forming that it's almost like you would have to have like one year contracts actions every year, keep the momentum going to really, to really make it like, you know, uh, good at, to make a, an education system that's going to be effective at, at teaching everyone. And, and to have a five year contract is, is gutting that from the start. No, we won't take anything less than three years or anything. More, sorry. We won't take anything more than three years. Right. Cause that at least three gives, years like, is the heart. that gives half the people, uh, the ability to be there for the full duration of the contract, like roughly by exactly. the numbers, right? Yeah. Um, it's also just the compensation articles in the mm-hmm. in Colombia's latest offer. You know, not even considering inflation, which is really bad right now, especially in New York City. You know, we're re- we're pushing seven percent. You know, it, for many people in our unit, especially people in the School of Engineering, it's an effective pay cut. It's bogus. Yeah. And also they want to essentially make it so that you only get, you know, there are different wage increases for people on and off appointment because of Columbia's weird relationship with the multiple forms of compensation that we get, mm-hmm. stipend and wages. And it does very little to address the issue of pay parity between, you know, say the School of Social Work and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. It's crap, you know. It's not total crap because there are serious wins that, you know, you can clearly see a lot of things that, you know, are the product of our organizing that are significantly better than the tentative. So, for example, even in this, you know, latest proposal from Columbia, Columbia has offered to pay for 75% of dental instruments, which is more than they have ever offered in the past. Right. So, you know, the way that I essentially tell, you know, talk to people about it is, you know, Look at this, you know, they're caving and this is before their arbitrary strike breaking deadline. We're winning so much. There's so much more we can win. Hell yeah. Um, this is not enough. And you can tell that there's more that they're going to give. Hell yeah. Well, that's the right attitude because so many um, labor movements and unions and stuff, they get to a certain point and they're like, well, we got what we really need. So let's just call it and not risk anything else. And it's like, well, you know, once you've got what you really need, you're in the most advantageous position you could possibly be in to keep asking for things. So it's really cool to hear that your union is like on this path of realizing that like gains lead to more gains and that uh, you really can ask for like everything that you need to make your life workable. Exactly. And, you know, there's no, this isn't even all that we need. <laughs> like, right. Sure. Right. Right. Absolutely. It, you know, we're not even at this point, like we, and part of the problem is we kind of have to constantly portray ourselves as reasonable um, <laughs> sure, and sure. justify our own reasonability. But it's true. Like we're not, we haven't even reached the minimum yet. We at Columbia needs to do better before we even consider going off strike. Oh, and, yeah. you know, the way that, we have or the way that we organized things this for this particular strike was that rather than giving the power to end the strike to the bargaining committee, we have weekly votes about whether or not to end the strike. And there is a double criteria 
um, such that, you know, you pull striking workers and non-striking workers, be they people who just aren't striking or people who are on appointment, aren't on appointment separately. And both groups have to vote to stop striking in order to send out the secret ballot to the entire unit. Nice. That would end the strike. That seems like a great system. It's Uh, fantastic uh, because it means that, you know, non-strikers and we, we every week the numbers have been fairly consistent like 90 95 percent of strikers want to continue the strike and 75 to 80 percent of non-strikers want to continue the strike that's pretty good one it makes it so that it's not the decision of the bargaining committee so they can't mm-hmm. you know, unilaterally right. decide this but b it means that the university really has to make something that the unit would ratify you know yeah, if absolutely. the university wants to stop the strike they need to get the unit to stop the strike they need to meet our demands not just to tease or you know bully the bargaining committee right right and so, of course our current bargaining committee is fantastic they're all rank and file organizers mm-hmm. you know they wouldn't take that kind of bullshit to begin with but it means that it's even easier for them at the table because when the mediator says you know are you guys going to end the strike they'll say that's not our call to make right well, it's awesome that you guys are doing this in such a democratic and, and rank and file uh, manner. And one of the biggest questions that we get from our listenership on this show is if we want to go out and support these labor movements, what are the uh, best ways to put our resources forward? So if people want to go and uh, help you guys support your strike effort, help you support any kind of future unionization efforts, where are the best places for them to follow you and get news about your movement uh, and also donate um, or otherwise help support what you're doing so the thing to do is obviously donate to our hardship fund Mm -hmm. um we've got a lot of work ahead of us and a lot of bills that need paying so financial support is number one i assume that you guys can link that in your show notes or to yes excellent so i'll send you guys that info follow us on sw underscore columbia i think um at twitter for you know news updates just tell everybody you know about what's going on. Also support um, the PSC at CUNY. Um, they're gearing up for, you know, some serious union action. Yeah. Contact Columbia in any way you see fit to let them know that it's time to settle. Um, talk to your own, you know, I mean, electoral politics are a questionable means for affecting large scale change mm-hmm. at many times, but you know, letters from politicians and solidarity, particularly New York politicians put a lot of pressure on the university. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but yeah, number one money, we yeah, need yeah. money. Yeah. I got of bills course. to pay. That's um, what it's we got to buy groceries. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on that note, I mean, yeah, we are going to make sure that that's in the show notes and we're going to uh, hope that lots of people get out there and support you all. And I uh, wanted to thank you so much for, for doing this interview with us. It was very enlightening on so many different aspects of this that are not exactly clear from, you know, the sometimes fractured reporting on some of these things. So, uh, again, thank you so much for being with us. Indeed. Thank you for having me. And ultimately, look, I'm just some schmo, you know, like uh, all the credit goes to my comrades in the union um, and for the people who have shown us solidarity. I'm just a guy who can talk really loudly and bang on a drum. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) I know the feeling. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, 
Uh, on that note, we're, we'll wrap the interview, and uh, we hope to hear more from more good news coming out of there, and we hope to see some concessions from the university. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. That's right. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, right on. Solidarity, Solidarity forever. forever.